Welcome to A World Where Living Works, stories of science and survival, bringing together our heads and our hearts to build a suicide-safer world. Talking openly about suicide is so important, but we also recognise that listening to this series may bring up some tough emotions. If so, please talk to a trusted family member, friend or local support service about how you are feeling. Visit livingworks.net and click on Find Safety for International Crisis Services. We are there to help you. This podcast is brought to you by Living Works, a network of local suicide first aid trainers in your community and communities around the world. Visit livingworks.net to find out how you can play your part in suicide prevention. You're listening to A World Where Living Works, and I'm your host, Kim Borodow. First of all, I'd like to acknowledge traditional owners of the beautiful lands, wherever you're listening. I'd also like to acknowledge everyone out there who's been impacted by suicide, the pain it brings to our lives, but also the desire to make positive change for all of us to live well. Today, I'm talking with Richard Ramsey, co-founder of Living Works. This is the fifth episode in season three of A World Where Living Works, a season focused on learning about the history and evolution of their groundbreaking suicide first aid training practices now being taught around the world. In the last episode, we talked about evidence behind the Living Works programs. In this episode, we get to the heart of Living Works, the people, the thousands of trainers in communities and workplaces around the world who are helping millions to upskill in suicide first aid. Hello again, Richard. Hello, Kim. Great to talk with you today. How did the trainer model come about? Because I think that's quite interesting because when you started doing that train the trainer model so that it's led by the people in their own communities and settings, how did that come about? Because that probably wasn't happening a lot in this environment before you started that. There was probably maybe two reasons. We identified two problems in the original research that was being done. One was, what can we do that would help reduce the rates of suicide or the impact of actual suicide on people in their communities? The other side of that was, what can we do to improve the confidence or the training of those who are helpers so that they won't be afraid to reach out to somebody? So we had two challenges. And then when we got introduced to a what ended up being called a social R&D model or a method, which was an adaptation from industrial R&D that a professor had done in Michigan some years earlier, they had a, a model that allowed you to go from researching the literature to designing a training curriculum to doing pilot tests and then field trials on a bigger audience, and then eventually to put it all together into some kind of manual type of learning. And then if it all works, to have large-scale dissemination. So when we got to that particular kind of question of how in the hell are we going to get this to a large-scale dissemination? Because there's just four of us. And even though it might be exotic to fly around the world for a while. (laughs) Not sustainable. (laughs) It's not sustainable. Plus, it was against our fundamental philosophy, which was community development. So we didn't want fly-in experts to come into communities, leave, and so forth. So we wanted people to be trained in their own communities 
and they would become the local expert or advisor or helper. So that really was the genesis of the training for trainers. It was the only way we can do this if we could train up trainers and allow them to do this. It's so interesting that this approach has been central to the development evolution of Living Works programs from day one, and a philosophy that's really come into its own over the past nearly 40 years. From a couple of local trainers to thousands doing the Train the Trainer course in suicide intervention skills and building capacity right where they live, work and play. What a great example of how the community development model works in practice over time. What else do you think in talking about the evolution of things? What about the move from the two-day to safe talk and now you've got the, the online start training? How did all that come about? Was it a natural progression? It sort of was. And the safe talk part started in Australia. And it had to do with the work you were doing with ADF. They had an annual stand down where everybody had to get an hour long lecture about suicide. And then they had the two day training. And so they came to us in the early 2000s and said, don't you have something in between like a one day? And at that time, we were really scared of going in the direction of a one day because we thought that people would gravitate to that and say, we can do it one day instead of two. So we resisted. And then with ADF pressing us, we sat down and said, well, maybe we should take the blinders off and at least think it through. Is there something that we could do that's in between? (laughs) And out of that, we came up with, yes, there is. And as a matter of fact, we can do you even one better than a day. We can give you everything you want in a day in a half a day. And over time, it ended up being safe talk. And the advantage of Safe Talk over other one day or half day programs was that it's connected with assist. So there's a natural bridge between the keep safe connection and getting them to somebody that they maybe know has been trained in assist and maybe in a mental health kind of environment. So that's how Safe Talk got started. It actually got started with the ADF personnel making some prototype films. I can't remember all the reasons, but we felt that, ah, it's not quite right. And part of that was the perfectionist in us that was getting in the way of saying it's got to be perfect. (laughs) So we took it home. We brought it back to Canada just at the very moment that we were bidding on a contract with the Toronto Transit Commission. And the Toronto Transit Commission had put out a call for bids for a two-day program. So we worked with a big hospital healthcare center in Toronto to put in a bid. Halfway through the bidding process, they called a meeting of the bidders and said, we've changed our mind. We only want a one-day program. We looked at each other and we said, we're done. You know, they changed the rules. So we were ready to quit. And then we decided that, well, we've got Safe Talk on the development platform. We need the money and some other things to really test it. So instead of backing off, let's carry on with the submission. We'll include Assist and Safe Talk and an awareness program. Anyway, they gave us the contract. This was in July, and they wanted a full 
testing and film development of the original Safe Talk scenarios by November so they could train some of their staff. And it was like, you got to be kidding. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for giving us the job, but what have we signed up for? Anyway, we were able to do it. And that's why the core vignettes in Safe Talk have this transportation element to them. And then, of course, we designed Safe Talk so that this one would give us a chance to have a whole library of scenarios that we could build or other people could build. And then when you were doing Safe Talk, you could look, well, my audience, my country, my whatever, and I'm just going to go into the library. And these are the six that I'm going to pick for this particular course. I just did that last week with a series of scenarios featuring young people and the people around them, all Australian, which was fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Pick and mix from the library. Yeah, yeah. So that was our dream with Safe Talk. And we also hoped, and I don't think it's evolved quite that way, but we hope that the cost of developing one of these vignette scenarios is not as much as it would cost to develop a, uh, an assist video so that people may have the funds that they could invest in developing a scenario that's going to work for their community. The kind of resistance that started to come through was kind of along the line of, we expect you guys to have the library and to produce all the vignettes and for us to try and push back a bit and saying, well, here's what it would cost us to develop these six scenarios for you. And then your neighbor is going to come in tomorrow and want the same six, only different. (laughs) And you're expecting us to be the ones that come up with the money all the time. So it's a bit of a challenge for people to see the value of putting up limited amounts of money to get something that then adds to the library. And what we did too was saying that if you put up the money and are willing to allow your scenario that belongs to your group or population to be put into the library, then it's only going to cost you half price to do this. And then your scenario will be available to everybody else. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense because you want to be able to share across different occupations, different age groups. It doesn't make sense for Living Works or the particular demographic to be paying 100% for a new lot of scenarios every time. And that's the difference between really walking the line between an NGO charity organization and a social enterprise is the idea that this kind of investment is actually pooling monies that would otherwise not be enough to get something done. But there's still that edge. And I know in Australia, that history has been there for a long time of saying, uh, you know, charity organizations are the ones that should be doing this work and not some private entrepreneur. What would you say if I'm a trainer and someone says to me, well, why should I go for Living Works as a for-profit organization over this charity that does mental health first aid training or something similar? How do I answer that in my community? Well, part of it is to get into that discussion of, you know, it takes money to uh, run a charitable organization. Somebody's got to get the money from the government or a charity to pay your salary and to give you some opportunities to develop better programming and serve the people in your community. So that doesn't just magically come off a tree somewhere. 
So there isn't a lot of difference when you really think about it between asking people to invest in something that can grow and it's being reinvested in the community than it is for a charity to have to actually take time out every once in a while and write a proposal and make the case that they should be funded to either improve or develop a new program. That takes away months of actually getting at it. And that was one of our dreams was that if we could come up with a way to raise the money and put development money aside so that when we needed to reinvest in an improvement or come up with a new program, we could go to our own development fund and start on it right away. And maximize time training instead of seeking out funds elsewhere. Yeah. And uh, now that's the future. I mean, all kinds of people are saying that corporations have to take on more social responsibility. Corporations have to become purpose-driven or enterprise-driven. There's a lot more opportunity than we had when we first started with the University of Calgary, when the lawyers that were helping us set up, they said, well, you've got two choices, structural choices. You can organize as a for-profit or you can organize as a non-profit. None of these other options were available at the time in 1990-91. And then they said, but if you go for the nonprofit, then you as founders can be board members or governors or workers, but you can't be both. But if you go in the for-profit structure, you can be both. And our response eventually was, well, we're too new into this whole thing. We don't really know whether it's going to work. So it's too early for us to give up being a governor or a worker. Yeah, you need to be both. <laughs> yep. You didn't have a lot of workers. Yeah, and we said, well, okay, then we've got to go with the for-profit structure. And then the advice the lawyers gave us was, you know, you don't have to have the traditional bottom line that you feed the shareholders. You can have a bottom line of whatever you want. And our original bottom line was, since there was no money anyway, <laughs> Our original bottom line was we wanted this training to be out in the world for free if it had to be. And it was because there was no income stream at the time. And we were even chicken when we got to the point of saying we started the pricing sort of at the lowest level you could go. It was like, well, this course is worth quite a lot of money in terms of development, but we think it's worth at least $5 to you for two days. But you don't have to pay $5. You just give us a donation of whatever you want. And then we move from there to say, oh, wait a minute. Let's be firm about this and say, it's going to cost you $5. And then we snuck it up to 10 And then we got it up to, to 20 on the basis of, well, there's these materials and everything that you're getting. Plus, there's all the development working behind it. So there's $10 of this and $10 of that for a total of 20 and that's how we had to sneak ourselves into the idea of, of charging, if you want. And in Australia, Bruce and Lifeline people, they had a couple of experiences. One was, if we provided the training for free, you ran the risk of everybody to nobody showing up. <laughs> so it was like, we've got to at least charge something in order for people to have to make the decision to give up the 20 bucks or whatever it might be, or show up and get their money's worth. And so again, it was a lesson learned that said, if you start giving it away, people aren't going to necessarily respect it. They don't value it. And value it, yeah. Mm -hmm. 
And, and that's in any field, really. Yeah, yeah. Do you see it from trainers that the philosophy still stands, that they don't want people to have to be personally disadvantaged financially to do the courses? So I see that from trainers around the world where they seek out funding to match that gap yeah. from government or business or whatever it might be. Yeah and have some small amount that's paid by an individual so that they have that commitment, but actually it's not a financial drain on them. And there's been some innovative funding that's been done. I remember one of our trainers, uh, Gary McConaughey from California at the time, he was running a crisis center and he was making pitches to funders for we need X number of dollars because we need some more support staff. And they kept getting turned down. And then somebody said to him, look, Gary, what you should be doing is making the pitch that we need 10 more seats paid for. And out of that money for the 10 seats, you will be able to hire your secretary or whatever it is. So he changed his approach and started saying, we need X number of seats for this county or this whatever. And the money started to pour in. <laughs> Because the donors were willing to pay for seats, but they weren't willing to pay for salaries. The stuff. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a common thing in the not-for-profit world too, where, yeah, I want to pay for something I can put my hands yeah. on. And we got into this hands-on thing. California, with their money, they were developing a handbook on suicide prevention. And the contract went out to a group of people at the same time we were doing our training there. And at the end of our contract, they came to us and said, what you've done for us in California is better than any other contract that we've actually given out over the last three years. And we have this one problem where we've contracted these people to write this manual and it's bad, but they've spent most of the money. We have a little bit of money that we could give you if you would tidy it up or clean it up a little bit. Well, we said, okay, we'll do that. And they also said that if you do that, you can have the rights to the book outside of California. So we did that. Of course, when we got into it with some of the perfectionist kind of people in our group, it didn't matter whether there was no money for it. You were doing it anyway. Yeah. If our name's going to be attached to it in some way, we got to do it right. <laughs> but out of that came the idea of a handbook that would be handed to you and it would be tangible. You went home with it. We could rationalize part of the fee, the $20 or $25. And we also knew that the markup was pretty good. And yet the participant went away saying, I got value for my money. Well, that worked for quite a while. Then the CD and DVD system came in and we had to switch to a disc. And we actually loaded the disc with a lot more information than just the manual. We had references and articles and, you know, we were pretty proud of what we're now giving you for the same 20 bucks. Well, the participants, they didn't see it that way. They came back and they said, what do you mean this little disc is 20 bucks? You know, you were giving me this book <laughs> for 20 bucks. For a lot of them, they could not get it into their head that there was $20 worth of value in that little disc. <laughs> they were getting extra. In fact. And they were getting yeah. extra. And so now are we back to handbook stage where people can have a tangible book? I don't know whether we were there or not, but it is really a psychological thing of what you translate as value for your money. 
That's an interesting question for the future too, I think, is, yeah, constantly coming back to what is the participant's perception of value for money. Yeah, yeah. And some of it is around the topic area. When we first had a funding grant for people to test the waters with corporations, Fortune 500 companies and whatnot, and they looked at the quality of the product, in this case, Assist, and they said, oh, this is such a high quality program. I can take it into any corporation and they're going to want it because it's way above whatever else they're doing in continuing ed. And we said, yeah, it's possible, but it's also a stigmatized topic. And we're not so sure they're going to see the quality right off the bat. They're going to see the stigma of being associated with suicide. So go ahead and give it a go. And they came back eventually and said, well, originally they said, we can get into the CEO easy. And if we can't, we can at least get to the HR person. No problem. We've never, ever failed there. So they came back several weeks later and he said, we couldn't even get into the HR And they were all apologetic and feeling bad. And we said, look, we told you six weeks ago that this could be a problem, but it really showed just how challenging it is to get, whether it's mental health or this kind of issue, in front of a new audience. It's similar to the course itself, really, but without any conversation about attitudes and reflecting on that, then you can't get to the skills training. And it's the same as going in with your product to a CEO or a HR manager, when you're presenting them, you're almost jumping ahead to here's the skills you need to learn, but they're still back here in their own context or attitudes. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's precisely it. It's uh, and you can be so excited and passionate about what you're offering them. And it gets very frustrating when they, they don't see it the way you do. (laughs) That's a good question, actually, that would come from trainers for you. So they are passionate advocates of the model, the course, the approach, and they're back in their community and they desperately want to train everyone they can and are knocking on doors and trying to get as many bums on seats as possible. What are some sort of tips that you've got if they have those doors closed or the response is not meeting the passion that they're bringing to the conversation when they're trying to engage people in endorsing the courses in their community? What are some tricks of the trade that you could offer to trainers in that respect? Well, I think one has been a fairly standard approach, which sometimes isn't easy to go along with, but it's the idea of let me do a demonstration and let me do it with some of your senior executives, let's say, willing to come, you know, no strings attached. But what we're banking on is the experience will change whatever negative they might have had. And even in the early days, it wasn't so much a trainer saying, let me do a demonstration, uh, but it was the California department that were bringing us in to pilot this in a school for two days. And we had the principal come in sort of the first day to sort of say, who are these strangers in my building? (laughs) This is my school. And he sort of sat in it for a little while. And then long story short, he never left that day one. And he came back day two. (laughs) And he really got caught up in the whole thing. 
but his first motive was to check out these interlopers in his school. <laughs> I love that. And then never left the room. Yeah. That's a good suggestion, though. Do a demonstration or get a small group engaged yeah. and go from there. And then there's other things that, again, these are idiosyncratic, but I always think of what happened in... Uh, Oh, what's the city just north of Sydney? Newcastle. Newcastle. I, I keep wanting to say New Glasgow, but Newcastle. And <laughs> uh, and I knew that later on when I got to know Shane, I knew that he came from Newcastle and I knew he'd been a school board person or a alderman or he'd been in the politics or government. But years ago, there was um, one of the high schools in Newcastle was really um, a rough school, a tough school, uh, a problem kid school. And one of the teachers in math or social studies was a trainer, I guess, or no, he wasn't a trainer, but he knew of trainers. And so he brought them in from Sydney. And so they did a training of the kids and teachers, a two-day assist. And then they did something really, I think is still quite unique in that they decided to have a graduation ceremony to give diplomas, certificates to those who graduated. And they didn't do it right away. They wanted an event like a graduation event. So they scheduled an evening where the parents were invited, the kids were invited, the teachers were invited, the trainers from Sydney were invited to come up. Well, it turned out to be one of the worst rainstorms, you know, in several months. <laughs> Of course. And so the two trainers from Sydney, it was like, you know, what are we doing driving all the way up there? And then they finally decided to go. And then there was the feeling that, well, it's going to show up. Uh, the parents aren't going to be here. It's raining too hard. And anyway, they get there. Everybody's there. All the moms and dads, all the students and the teachers. And they have this wow. uh, ceremony. And everybody comes up and gets their certificate and with a ribbon on it. And, um, and it was just wonderful. In fact, it was so, so uh, eye-catching, if you want, that the local MP uh, got wind of it and actually brought that class to Canberra to uh, show them off in the visitor's gallery of this is, this is what these wow. people back home were doing. <laughs> Well, that's a good lesson to learn, actually, that don't focus on the, um, I guess, the obviously engaged because that was a disengaged population but with one person who thought, let's give this a go. Yeah. And then that resulted in their the validation of their efforts and rewarding the um, focus, which means you get the benefit of the suicide, suicide first aid skills, but actually they got so much more out of that. Yeah. and be Above and beyond what they learned in those two days. And, and something had to happen with those kids who are rough kids that they were able to persuade their parents to show up for this silly ceremony, if you want. <laughs> um, and the parents had that much, I guess, you know, faith or feeling in their children getting some kind of recognition because um, probably what they were mostly getting is phone calls from the principal about Johnny has done something bad again. <laughs> exactly. And here was a positive thing they could all engage in. 
It'd be, it'd be interesting to check in with that um, that teacher and those kids, actually. Yeah, it would be. And, and Shane and I have talked about this quite recently because I was telling him about it. And then we checked Hansard and um, I thought I knew who the MP might be, but he checked it some more and found out it was a different person. In fact, it was a woman MP. Um, and I don't know whether he's followed it through anymore, but yeah, it would be if you could find that teacher or even one. Oh, check it out. Yeah. One or two of those kids. <laughs> um, yeah. I might do a bit of detective work, see what we can find. Yeah. Yeah. It would be fun because, uh, well, you, you don't know um, if you find one of those kids, uh, you know, where they are now in life and what they might say about that school teacher and that moment. Yeah. Yeah, it's. Uh, what other what other things stand out for you when you think of just those moments where you think that was a turning point or just an amazing moment in the history of the work that you've been doing? Well, I guess in some ways uh, I go back to Roger. Roger, <laughs> Roger was the the uh, the youthful enthusiast. Um, it, it, it was like he was, he would jump for joy at almost anything that was kind of new. So if we got invited to a small town in the next province, he would be the one that says, I can't believe this. Can you believe this? Look where we are. <laughs> and then it was somewhere else in Canada. And then it might be someplace in Europe or some other place. And he was always the one, I can't believe we're here. <laughs> uh, can you believe that uh, we've come all the way from Alberta to this place? And, uh, and so he was always reveling in um, what it meant to be somewhere for the first time. <laughs> I love that. Even what you were saying before about Lithuania, you know, yeah. just when you hear these stories where a, a workshop's taken place, it must be pretty amazing. One we did, I think it was in Brisbane. Uh, this was afterwards, but. Um, and we had a number of people from the Northern Territories. And one fellow was, I think he was, he might have been a chaplain or a chaplain assistant up in the Territories, but um, he was very original. <laughs> um, and so he was having trouble, you know, studying for his presentation time. Uh, he was having trouble trying to understand the old overhead projector system. Um, and um, so at one point it was like <clears throat> he had these reams of notes uh, to sort of say, can you try putting them over here and just be you in terms of presenting? So he did that, tried that. It wasn't working all that well. But the one that I really remember was is that we had to tape down the, the power cords from the overhead projector to the plug-ins. And he was wearing uh, the slip-ons, the, uh, what do you call them? <laughs> uh, uh, the sandals. and uh, thongs. Thongs, thongs. And, um, and some of the tape had pulled off. And so he would step on the sticky tape and his foot would stick to the, to the tape. <laughs> 
And that was making it worse because he's now trying to remember what he was supposed to say. And now he's got to get his foot off of the damn sticky tape. <laughs> so anyway, he tried a couple of times and then he basically he just had the hell with it. And he kicked off his thongs and he was in his bare feet. And then he was perfect in his style and his presentation and his impact on the audience. <laughs> and uh, got in the zone. Yeah, he was. Yeah, he was. I can totally visualize that thong sticking <laughs> to the tape. I mean, you can see it in your head. But that's a, that's a good point about just, you know, even though the fidelity to the model and and understanding the reason why you're using that model doesn't mean that you're not your absolute self and you bring yourself yeah. and your personality into the training and, and your context. Yeah. And go bare feet if you need to, barefoot yeah. if you need to. <laughs> <laughs> so those are... Uh... And as I say, in the other one that I, I wasn't part of it, but people like Lorna Hirsch, I think was, and, and Brian, I think Brian Tanney too, but um, when they, when they presented to the group and the Kimberleys and, and really nobody was um, interested in reading materials and they just went with the model and, uh, and everybody identified with the model and, and it worked for them. Um, and that and the other one with with Lindy and others when they were in the Pacific Islands and they were they were doing two days with people from all the different Pacific Islands. There's, you know, might have been 10 or 11 uh, examples. Um, and the only thing that those people were saying to them about this kind of foreign training program was if you allow us to use whatever word they had that was a close approximation to the idea of suicide and allow us to use that word in the, in the uh, practice sessions, um, that's all we need to be able to do. Give us that permission and that's, that's the only change you have to make to this program. And we can go with it and take it into our community. Yeah. Pretty powerful. So. That was interesting when I did an interview with the professor from Hong Kong and they were talking about a similar thing about the language that's used or not used and actually that before you go into a training session, you need to have a few conversations to be understanding that. Yeah. And that's why it's so important to have the local trainers because you already have an understanding of that culture and community yeah. context. You're not trying to find your way. So it definitely plays to the importance of yeah. that train the train the model so that you you have local people training local people amazing to see people adapting the programs so they're culturally appropriate while staying true to the evidence base and integrity of the model behind it sadly that's all the time we have today richard thank you again for talking with us on today's episode thank you kim great to talk with you today i hope you've enjoyed hearing about the start of living works from the perspective of one of its founders Join me for more conversation with Richard in the next episode. If you've enjoyed this episode, we'd love you to subscribe on the usual channels, write a five-star review, and most importantly, share it with your family, friends, and colleagues on social media, tagging Living Works. This podcast is brought to you by Living Works. 
a network of local suicide first aid trainers in your community and communities around the world. Visit livingworks.net to find out how you can play your part in suicide prevention. A reminder that if this episode has brought up tough emotions for you, talk to a trusted family member, friend or local support service about how you're feeling. Visit livingworks.net and click on Find Safety for International Crisis Services. We are there to help you.